Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome back to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast for episode 65. Today is a highly requested topic on pathways into nutrition and tips for nutrition students with nutritionist and dietitian Rachel Hawkins. Rachel Hawkins is a Sydney dietitian and nutritionist with a Bachelor of Exercise and Nutrition Science and a Master's of Dietetic Studies, who is passionate about helping women ditch diets and adopt a more balanced approach to nutrition. She is a foodie, content creator, writer, speaker, and host of chart-topping podcast, Naked Chats. Rachel has an active presence in the online health space and aspires to transform the way people think about food by sharing nutrition information in a fun and relatable way. She's followed an unconventional path, which you can stay up to date with via her Instagram account, which is at Rachel Hawkins Dietitian. Welcome, Rachel, to our podcast today. I'm stoked to have you on talking all tips, nutrition um, for our students and dietitians as well listening. Thank you so much for having me. Well, to start with, can we tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your story and how you came to, I guess, working in the space of nutrition and dietetics? Yeah, of course. So ironically, dietetics actually wasn't ever a field that I thought I would get into. I don't even think I realized nutrition was a career until uh, my early 20s. So uh, I guess as a young kid, I had a pretty good relationship with food. You know, I always remember being in the kitchen with um, my mom baking and also going to my grandma's house. I'd get so excited because we would make like an egg in a cup. So... (laughs) As a young kid, you'd like crack your egg in and pop a bit of milk in, mix it up and watch it cook in the microwave and it would look like a volcano erupting, which I thought was, you know, really cool. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, that that positive relationship with food sort of shifted once I entered primary school uh, around that year four mark. Um, I would describe myself as being like very much a tomboy. Like I had majority male friends at school. I was, you know, always out riding my bike, skateboard after school, had scratched up knees and um, I was very lucky to have quite a good group of friends and people who I, I still have friendships with today. But there was a, a time in in that year four mark where a new girl came to school and, and my group befriended her and she was very different to what I was like. She was very much a girly girl and loved dancing and ballet. And at some point during that friendship, uh, she actually told me that I was fat and needed to lose weight. And um, yeah, so at 10 years old, I sort of remember restricting my food intake for the first time in attempt to lose weight. So mum would send me off to school with, with a packed lunch bag and I would come home and hide all the food in the closet because I didn't want her to know that, you know, I wasn't eating my lunch because I didn't want her to ask me any mm. questions. So that when I think back is definitely something that triggered what ended up being, I guess, a, a decade plus of struggling with binge eating and emotional eating. I had extremely poor body image and self-confidence all throughout my teens, sort of jumped from diet to diet, trying all these different meal plans and, you know, crazy things to try and lose weight. And as you would know, uh, unfortunately, that doesn't ever really work. <laughs> Um, and yeah, it just sort of left me feeling 
disheartened and and really confused about what foods I should eat. So mm-hmm. It was right before my 21st birthday. I'd just gotten back from an overseas trip where I was in Europe for three months, ate a lot of food, drank way too much. And I sort of remember being the heaviest and probably most unhappy that I had ever been in my life. And I sort of had that light bulb moment where I realized that things needed to change. And I really didn't want to spend the rest of my life, you know, worrying about my weight or obsessing over food and feeling guilty about the things that I was eating. So I actually made the decision to enroll in a 12-week program, which actually still runs to this day. And at the time, I remember it being really quite unique because it was the first program that I came across that Uh, essentially covered nutrition, exercise, and mindset training Mm -hmm. over a a 12-week period. And that 12 weeks really helped to sort of shift my mindset from being really weight-focused to more health-focused. I ended up losing about 10 kilos over that 12-week period. So it was a pretty significant weight loss. But Interestingly, I didn't even realize that I had lost that weight because I actually stopped weighing myself. It wasn't until, um, you know, a month or two after that I jumped on the scales and was like, oh, wow. Um, You know, I was just very much focused on how I was feeling. And it was the first time in my life that I felt good. Like, I honestly didn't know that your body could feel that good and you could have that much energy and have Mm -hmm. a zest for life. So, that was really a turning point for me and a point where I guess I developed an interest in in food and nutrition and sort of rekindled that love for food that I had, you know, when I was quite a lot younger. So, you know, I'd read books and of course do the Google searches online on, you know, the trending food and nutrition topics. And I very quickly came to realize that there's a lot of conflicting information online. Surprise, surprise. So mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I just decided the only way to sort of tell truth from fiction was to study nutrition myself. And that's what I did. So I studied a Bachelor of Exercise and Nutrition Science at the University of Queensland in Australia. And then I went on to study my master's in dietetics and became a dietitian. Wonderful. Well, that's why I've got you on as our guest expert today, because I get asked so many questions about, you know, how do I become a nutritionist? How do I become a dietitian? What's the difference between them both? Do I need to go to university? Can I, what if I just want to learn about it myself, but I don't actually want to help people in it. And it's such a confusing area, like the field of nutrition in Australia, but also throughout the world is very, very confusing. So I would love for you to break it down for our listeners at home. And let's start with the basics. What exactly is the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian? Because I'm sure that you also get asked that multiple times a day, multiple times a week. And it's, it's quite confusing for our listeners at home. So I'd love for you to, I guess, clarify a little bit um, of the di- two differences between either being a nutritionist or a dietitian. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree. It really is confusing. So I suppose if we break it down to the most basic level, um, a nutritionist is someone that I would sort of describe as working in the area of disease prevention, whereas dietitians work in the area of disease prevention plus disease treatment. So the big difference in terms of uh, what a dietitian and nutritionist would complete at university is that dietitians undertake a, a study of medical nutrition therapy. And that's essentially learning to treat acute and chronic medical conditions using food um, and through, I guess, individually tailored nutrition care plans. And that's what allows dietitians to work in clinical and hospital settings. Wonderful. And I guess 
Uh, again, a lot of people will say the question, can a nutritionist be a dietitian, but can a dietitian be a nutritionist? Again, quite a confusing um, field. So I'd love for you to break that down for listeners at home, why dietitians are also nutritionists, but why nutritionists aren't necessarily dietitians. Yeah. So <laughs> very confusing. So dietitians, when they graduate, they're automatically, um, I guess, able to, to call themselves nutritionists, whereas nutritionists can't call themselves dietitians. Um, and I guess that probably has to do with the regulation around the use of the terms dietitians and nutritionists. So when, uh, oh, I suppose let's start with dietitians. So dietitians have a governing body, right, in each country, and that governing body holds them responsible for the way that they practice. And if they don't adhere to a particular standard of practice and care, then they can essentially lose their accreditation. So in Australia, our regulatory body is called the Dietitians Association of Australia, although they've just recently <laughs> rebranded and renamed to Dietitians yeah. Australia. So I'll throw both of them in there. So if you want to work as a dietitian, you have to register with them and you have to partake in a credentialing program called the APD program uh, in order to call yourself a dietitian. And what's involved in that is actually 30 hours a minimum per year of uh, continuing professional development activities as evidence of ongoing learning throughout the course of your career. Mm-hmm. So on the flip side, nutritionists, unfortunately, the term is not regulated, mm-hmm. which means that people who have completed a three-month, six-month nutrition course online can call themselves a nutritionist as much as someone who's done a three-year bachelor-level university degree. So obviously there's a big disparity in the level of education that those two people would have, yet they're both called nutritionists. Um, And that kind of sucks for nutritionists, to be honest, because unfortunately it brings their, their credibility into question. Mm-hmm. which I think is a shame because there's a lot of really wonderful nutritionists. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, the people who are perhaps not as qualified sometimes uh, can can ruin the name of the nutritionist a little bit, which is a shame. Definitely. And you mentioned because um, there is actually no regulation for the field of nutrition in Australia, it's not even that you have to do a three to six months like certificate online. You could literally do a two-day scoop on in nutrition and call yourself a nutritionist because anybody in Australia, and this is also apparent for the rest of the world as well, can actually call themselves a nutritionist without actually having any formal qualifications. You could jump on Instagram and call yourself a nutritionist, anybody listening at home. So that's why I think it's very important for our listeners to be aware of. Um, and that's probably the biggest difference between the field of nutrition and dietetics is that dietitians do have that um, that regulation and that's apparent throughout the rest of the world. You know, the UK has it, the US have it and different countries as well. Whereas as you mentioned, nutritionists, there are some wonderful university qualified nutritionists out there and there are some other nutritionists who have done a two-day scoop on course online um, and a weekend training Yeah, and to, uh, you know, doing different blood tests and nutrition analysis and giving out diets and you know, trying to treat and prevent diseases as well. So it's a little bit scary and it is very, very confusing, I guess, for the consumers to listen to because of that. Um, There's no regulation in that field, which is a little bit scary as well. And disappointing if you are a highly qualified nutritionist as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a shame. And I suppose it's probably important to note that there is a voluntary registration for nutritionists Mm. that exists in Australia. So if you're (laughs) someone who's done a bachelor degree in a health science and you've majored in nutrition, uh, you can actually register um, 
with the Nutrition Society of Australia and that gives you a credential. So that helps to sort of give you back a little bit of that credibility and it also means that your services uh, potentially could be eligible for private health rebates, which is, um, you know, really appealing if you're someone that that's seeing clients. Wonderful. And then just going back in terms of the difference between nutritionists and dietitians, a lot of people will say to me, well, you know, I don't know if I want to do dietetics. And I was very much like you. I went to, to university. I did a Bachelor of Health Science majoring in nutrition. My goal was to either be a nutritionist, a paramedic, a physiotherapist, or a doctor at the end of that, because I love that the health science degree had so many options at the end of it. And sort of the last one to two years, you could major in different fields. I ended up majoring in nutrition and becoming a nutritionist. Um, but then I I went and I worked out in the country and we've talked a little bit about this on the podcast episode that I did for you as well. And I'll definitely link Rachel's podcast um, for listeners at home if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about my background and story. But I went and I worked in the country and um, I was doing a lot of like policy and program development, working with the local schools there, developing tuck shop menus, more working at that preventative health level, trying to prevent diseases. Um, But I'd get stopped in the street all the time and asked about people's diabetes and insulin adjustments. And, you know, my mum has renal failure. What can she eat? And be asked questions about potassium. And I was like, what? I don't even understand this. So I guess a lot of people will think that dietitians, if you want to be a dietitian, you have to work in the hospital. But that's absolutely not true as well. And the field of dietetics these days is so... I guess saturated and there are so many graduates that the majority will never be clinical dietitians. So what are the areas, I guess, or what are the um, differences between nutritionists and dietitians or what is the further benefit of going on and doing the extra study in dietetics, um, if you even if you had no desire to ever work in a hospital? I guess it's just having that option mm. um, and potentially a few more, more job opportunities. Um, of course, there is, I guess, that additional um, 12 to, to 24 months of training in that area of medical nutrition therapy. So like you were saying, if you want to work with, with clients and help to manage chronic diseases, having that knowledge is just so valuable. So I would say Yes, um, you know, very much dietitians can work in any field that nutritionists can. You know, you sort of spoke about, um, you know, public health area, there's community settings, policy making is another one. I also think marketing, nutrition marketing mm-hmm. is such a, a great area for nutritionists and dietitians to get into. But in terms of the benefit of perhaps doing a dietetics course, for me, it would primarily be that option to sort of uh, potentially apply for more jobs. Uh, as you sort of said, the nutrition field is very saturated. So the job market is really competitive. So, you know, if you only have, um, you know, a clinical job available working in an outpatients clinic, or you want to go into aged care or perhaps a food service role, then you would need to have a dietetics qualification. Because in Australia, the current recommendations or the current guidelines only allow dietitians to work um, in places like hospital settings. Nutritionists actually can't work in hospital settings in Australia. And that's the same with a lot of of aged care facilities um, and outpatient clinics linked to hospitals as well, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. That's right. And then how do um, the fields of, you know, um, naturopaths and nutrition coaches and that sort of thing, how does that fit in terms of nutrition and dietitians as well, nutritionists and dietitians as well? Because it's getting a little bit messy now, isn't it? (laughs) 
It is. Yeah. Very good question. And admittedly, I was on Google last night trying to look for like a solid definition of what like naturopathy was and what a naturopath does. Yeah. Um, so as far as I understand it, naturopathy is an alternative medicine. So it's very holistic and it's sort of based on the principles that the body sort of has an inherent ability to sort of uh, heal itself, if you like. So naturopathy is actually a complementary therapy. So it's not designed to treat a specific illness or disease. And I think that's where people sort of get a little bit confused with naturopathy. So it's designed to be used in conjunction with other, other medical therapies. So naturopaths sort of provide a, a range of different services. Uh, herbal medicines, obviously, are a really big thing for them. They also offer a range of different physical therapies. So massage, kinesiology, counseling, and um, also dietary and lifestyle advice as part of their service. And I think that's where things get a little bit messy um, because as we were speaking about beforehand, um, you know, naturopaths are not regulated either, the same as uh, nutritionists. So again, someone who's done a, a three-week course can call themselves a naturopath just as much as someone who's done a bachelor three-year naturopathy um, degree. So again, the education level isn't comparable, yet they're using the same title. And I think that's where it gets a little bit messy. Mm, definitely. And then I'm going to take you one step further and throw a few more professions <laughs> into the mix. Um, you know, people, uh, professions such as, you know, chiropractors, osteos, they routinely give out nutrition advice, although technically they probably really shouldn't. And I actually had a DM from um, one of my followers on Instagram the other day, and she was asking me a question about her son. Obviously, I can't give out professional advice online, and that's what I always say to people. But she said that she took her 10 year old son to go and see a physio for his sore knee, and the physio did a few massages and then prescribed him two cups of bone broth a day for two months because the physio could tell that his gut was inflamed and that was causing his knee pain. And that blows my mind that somebody who is that universally qualified can cross into the space of nutrition and be giving out, you know, unfounded advice that's not based on evidence or science or anything like that. Um, and so I think, I think a lot of people get very confused around all of these professions giving out nutrition advice and who to listen to. And it's very messy and there's a lot of noise. Um, so how do, you know, the fields of chiropractors, osteos, physios, that sort of thing fit into the field of nutrition as well? Well, I guess they don't, <laughs> which is the issue. Um, like as a dietitian, I could never imagine sending a client away with an exercise program yeah, or yeah. here I did one course at uni um, in anatomy. I know where the muscles in the knee are. Do these exercises, it, it'll help with a particular ailment. Like we would never do that as a dietitian. So I don't know why other medical professions feel like they can offer nutrition advice and I've sort of been thinking about this and I feel like there's sort of a perception that maybe people can't cause harm with nutrition, mm. but obviously we know that's not the case. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously uh, inaccurate or inappropriate nutrition advice given to the wrong person can have, you know, quite a big psychological impact. Mm -hmm. um, you know, look at people with eating disorders, for example, or disordered eating behaviors, um, the rates of premature death as the result of uh, preventable diseases and, and chronic diseases, which have a really strong nutrition component. Like mm -hmm. that's evidence enough to, sh you know, show you that nutrition does impact health. I think it's just the fact that maybe that impact isn't as immediate as what it would be if, you know, someone was given an exercise and they immediately hurt their back. Um, the implications sort of happen over, over a longer period of time. Mm. 
Definitely. And don't get me wrong. Again, I've had some wonderful physiotherapists, exercise scientists, that sort of thing on this podcast as well. Again, between the different disciplines, I'm not saying that every osteo and every chiro is giving out nutrition advice either, but I do find that it's quite apparent, particularly online on social media. People, you know, will send me things from other people's pages all the time and say, you know, what do you think about this? This, you know, chiro is telling people to give up you know, dairy and gluten because it's inflammatory and it's causing their back pain. So I think for our listeners at home, it's very important to be aware of where you get, you're getting that nutrition advice from and the actual qualifications of that person as well. And again, a, you know, a two week certificate on, in nutrition is very different to a three year nutrition degree at university as well. So Absolutely. I hope that that yeah, clarifies some of the differences between all of the, I guess, experts online that is calling themselves nutrition experts and what the expert title really does hold. Um, so thank you for for helping our listeners clarify that. Um, and then I'm sure as you as I do, you also get uh, lots of questions from younger listeners um, wanting to study nutrition as a career path. So what sort of subjects did you do, or did you know in your last few years of high school that you wanted to study nutrition? Because I get a lot, you know, a lot of questions from people in year 9, 10, 11, 12, sort of saying, what do I need to study in high school if I'm considering nutrition as a, um, as a career path? Yeah, of course. So I'm probably the perfect example of what not to study at high school if you <laughs> want to be a dietitian. Um, so I was very much um, a creative person. So mm-hmm. my final subjects uh, in my senior years at high school were very much centered around um, English so I've always been quite a good writer um, and arts. So I did, you know, textiles and design and visual arts as well. So I did not do a science subject, I think from year 10 onwards. So I think year nine was the last time I did science. So what happened when, you know, I obviously figured out that, hey, I want to do nutrition is that I had (laughs) to go back and study a science subject. So Mm -hmm. In order to uh, meet the requirement, sorry, entry uh, to university, you have to do a, a science subject equivalent to that of year 11 and 12, whether that be chemistry or biology, it doesn't matter, just one of the two. Mm-hmm. So I actually did a biology bridging course for 12 months. I did that via correspondence before I was able to start uh, at university studying nutrition. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And any other subjects that um, you would think is important for, I guess, high schoolers to be aware of, if even if they're considering any really like health aspect. As I said, I, I didn't know if I wanted to do physiotherapy or be a doctor or um, even a speech therapist was, you know, something I was considering as well, as long as a dietitian. So I think I, I did a lot of subjects, um, but anything else you would recommend um, more towards any sort of like health um, discipline if they were thinking about that towards university? Yeah. Well, I I think, God, it's been a while since I graduated. And to be honest, um, my school, I think, had quite a, a limited uh, scope in terms of the electives that you could pick. But mm-hmm. I mean, if you're wanting to sort of get into the health food, any um, health field, sorry, anything uh, related to that, whether it be like a food tech type of class or a, um, a PE type of class, anything in that health field is going to be more beneficial versus perhaps what I did doing art. <laughs> Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I, again, I was someone like maths wasn't my strong subject and I was like, I don't ever want to do math C. So I, um, I actually did math B and once I found out, I didn't actually know I wanted to to do that until really into year 12. And I picked all my subjects and electives year 10 and 11, but I was fortunate that my parents sort of guided me to the path of like doing maths B because that was sort of a prerequisite for me to get into, um, the bachelor of health science that I did as well. Um, I did HP in school because I love sports. So fortunate enough to have that one. And I did biology as well because, 
you know, I kind of enjoyed science, but the big one that I missed was chemistry. And so I actually had to do a chemistry bridging course once I hit uni as well. So I did um, my first full year of uni and a summer school chemistry bridging course as well, which I just found so difficult. Um, And I actually had to get a tutor as well. So no shame in admitting that uh, chemistry is not my thing. Um, And I got through it and I passed it and I got all my electives in place and was able to cruise through my bachelor's degree from that. But I definitely do recommend... um, thinking about maths be some sort of science-based subject, as you mentioned, doesn't have to be chemistry, but you're probably going to save yourself a little bit of extra time and study. If any sort of health field is something that you want to get in, particularly like medicine or nutrition and dietetics, chemistry is probably a good one. And then as you mentioned, any sort of like, I did home economics as well in year 12, which I just thought was really cool because I loved cooking and I basically just got to cook each time. I hated the sewing component of it, but that was helpful as well. And some sort of sport or health and physical education class, I think are all good things to consider if you're even thinking about um, university nutrition studies. Yeah, I really like your point about maths B actually, because that just triggered my memory. I had to do that at university Mm -hmm. as an elective because I only did general maths at um, school. So great point, maths. Do your maths. <laughs> Still have absolutely no idea how, uh, if I've ever used maths B since year 12. I, I honestly don't believe I have. Maybe I've been asked what the square root of, I don't know, or something to do with pi is before, <laughs> but that's probably as much as I've yeah. ever done. But it probably is a prerequisite, so good for our listeners at yes. home to, to be aware of because it is, yeah, it is a little bit of a pain to have to go and do additional studies while you're trying to undertake your, you know, your first year of university or that sort of thing mm, as well. So Definitely. All right. And then what do you, what would you recommend would be the benefits of studying nutrition at university or for our um, US listeners, I think they call it college, um, compared to doing some sort of like for online course? Well, I suppose the most obvious uh, response there would be that, you know, you're definitely going into more detail in a a university course because they're longer. They're generally a minimum three years, um, whereas, you know, a TAFE course may only be 12 months. So Mm -hmm. there's only a maximum amount of content that you can cover in that time period. In terms of knowing what course is right for you, I would sort of just encourage people to think about the types of areas that they want to work in and what type of practitioner they want to be. If they are someone who wants to work with clients, um, you know, undertaking a university level degree, like we sort of touched on before, uh, enables you to register with particular governing bodies. Um, It sort of strengthens your credibility as a practitioner. Um, And because the industry is so saturated, I think that's very advantageous. And of course, it also enable, enables you to be eligible for rebates with particular uh, private health insurers and, and Medicare if you're a dietitian as well, which again is really appealing in terms of um, a client perspective. Mm, definitely. And then again, I get asked a, f- uh, a few questions from people who say, you know, I just want to learn more about nutrition. Like they say, your podcasts are wonderful. I learned so much, but I want to go a bit deeper but I actually don't want to have clients and I don't want to be a nutritionist. I just want to have that knowledge that they have. So any sort of, I guess, online courses or books or programs that you would recommend um, for those types of people that just want to take their learning that step further, but actually don't want to run their own practice or see their own clients. They just want to have that knowledge and learning for themselves. Yeah, I guess if it's for self-learning, there's a lot of, I guess they call them like nutrition coaching courses, which do like a 12 months really basic nutrition education. I know a lot of the fitness institutes offer them here in Australia. I'm not too sure about overseas. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of books to read, there's so many nutrition professionals who have brought out books, which is really exciting. So I would be looking for, um, you know, maybe some of your favorite nutrition professionals and seeing, you know, what products they have. Uh, 
And it all depends really on your interest areas. So um, I know gut health is a focus of your podcast and it's really quite popular at the moment. Um, Dr. Megan Rossi, fantastic dietitian. She has a book called Eat Yourself Healthy, which is fabulous. Um, the gut health MD, Will, I'm not even going to try to say his last name. Bullswick. You had him on your podcast. <laughs> yeah. <okay>. yeah. <laughs> um, his book, Fiber Fuels, which I'm yet to read, but I really want to get my hands on. So It's excellent. Can confirm. It is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think they're really good places to start. I personally have an interest more in the uh, intuitive eating and haze or healthy eating at uh, every size mm-hmm. uh, sort of approach. So um, Laura Thomas, she's a registered nutritionist in the UK, I believe. She has a great book called Don't Salt My Game, which I highly recommend. Um, and let's not forget podcasts as well. How many fantastic nutrition professionals are uh, on um, podcasting now? Your podcast, obviously, Leanne. Um, Rhiannon Lambert, she's a nutritionist over in the UK. Food for mm-hmm. Thought is her podcast. Yeah, that's the Mindful one. Dietitian. Um, that one's by Fiona Sutherland, who's a dietitian based here in Australia. So there's heaps online um, and a lot that you can use as resources for your own sort of learning and, and development. Mm, awesome. And then let's talk about, say there are some nutritionists and dietitians already listening or maybe students, maybe they're in their first, second years or really about to graduate. What sort of advice would you give to nutrition professionals? And that could be nutritionists, it could be dietitians, it could be students to almost set themselves apart. Because as we've talked about, the field of nutrition is very messy. There's a lot of um, so-called experts in that field. Social media is filled with influencers who are, of course, nutrition experts as well. All these big social media influencers have their own eight-week challenge. They've got their own programs. They've got their own fitness eBooks. How do actual qualified nutrition professionals set themselves apart in this messy social media online space? That's a very good question. Um, (laughs) Sort of break it down. In terms of setting yourself apart, I mean, um, first of all, uh, I guess, experience is going to be your biggest thing. So prior to graduating, volunteer wherever you can, network with as many people as you can, because they're the things that are going to help to set you apart because you're sort of establishing yourself as a professional um, in your industry and making that transition from from student to uh, health professional, I suppose. Um, once you're graduated, I think networking is, is the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say talk to as many people as you can and start conversations um, about, you know, what you want to do, getting recommendations for different professional development activities that you can do to upskill in a certain area. I think something that's really important to remember is that when you graduate, we all graduate with pretty much the same qualifications. So Mm -hmm. if you have two resumes in front of you. They're pretty much identical. So it's those little 1%, the volunteering work that you've done, uh, the connections that you've made, uh, the experience that you've gotten that are going to be the things that really set you apart uh, from other people in your in your industry. So I would say start the networking early and start those conversations early. It's actually amazing how many people I've had on my podcast who talk about job opportunities that arise just from networking and having conversations with people. Um, I know some people on the podcast that I've spoken to don't even have resumes Mm. because all of their job opportunities have come from conversations. So never uh, underestimate the power of networking and just sort of putting yourself out there. Definitely. I love that tip. Like who you know is actually so important, isn't it? (laughs) Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then say we've got some listeners at home who again might be nutrition professionals, dietitian students who are very close to graduating. I know it's all very, um, it's all very new and exciting, but it can be very overwhelming because everybody's 
is competing for what little jobs there are. Do you have any tips for our new grads who are listening um, in terms of um, job opportunities, interviewing tips, how to write your resume to, again, stand out that little bit more? Obviously, networking, that sort of thing is important. But when it comes down to actually getting that job, what would say um, has helped you in the past to be successful in landing some of the jobs that you have? Yeah, I think my advice would probably be a little bit uh, different to maybe what people are expecting. And that would be (laughs) to follow your passion area Mm -hmm. um, and not to let the advice of other people deter you from what you want to do. And I say that because I wasted a lot of time applying for jobs that I never wanted, but I applied for them because I thought that's what I had to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was applying for clinical roles um, that in hindsight, there's no way that I would have gotten a clinical role because as a recruiter, if you've got two applications in front of you and you've got an application from someone who has spent the last 12 months of her studies trying to build a social media following, which is what I was trying to do, establish myself (laughs) online, versus another student who's graduated from the same university, same qualifications, but has spent the past 12 months volunteering as a dietitian's assistant and helping with food service in a hospital, that is the stronger candidate. Hands down, they're going to get the job. So I guess I would say follow your passion, apply for jobs that you are passionate about. It's your interest area. If of course you uh, know what that is when you graduate and reach out to people who can help you because applying for a job for food industry or, or marketing is very different to how you would write a resume for a clinical position. So talking to um, dietitians or mentors that specialize in, in particular types of areas to get advice uh, in terms of the wording and the types of things that people are are looking for in different types of industries, I think is really advantageous as well. Mm, definitely. And tailoring your resume, obviously, to the job that you're applying for. Don't use the same resume to apply for a clinical dietitian job, to apply for a chronic disease community position, to apply for a social media nutritionist online position. Yes, exactly. They are all completely different. (laughs) Um, So yeah. And resume writing takes a long time. Mm -hmm. Like you could easily spend a day like easily writing a resume, writing a good cover letter. If you're applying for clinical jobs, more often than not, they'll have selection criteria questions as well, which can take quite a long time to to write. So just know that, um, you know, applying for a job is not meant to be a quick and easy task. Like you said, it's not just a copy and paste. I'm just going to change, you know, the job (laughs) that I'm applying for. Yeah. yeah, The name, like, um, which, you know, I'm sure many people have done that and forgotten to change the name or or place. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but yeah, take, take your time with it. And like you said, definitely, uh, personalize it and make sure that your application and your resume is, uh, tailored to the industry and the job that you're applying for. hundred percent. And even, um, a tip that I have for our listeners at home, because, um, a lot of you don't know that I actually worked as a clinical dietitian for over six years at one of the hospitals in Brisbane. And I was actually fortunate enough to do the acting director role there and actually sat on a few recruitment panels and recruited a few staff. So I've seen hundreds of resumes. And the big thing for me that really stood out between the new graduates and the younger dietitians applying was that pretty much every resume looked the same. And it was like the selection criteria or the job application would say, demonstrate that you have good communication skills, demonstrate that you have good teamwork and um, uh, team building skills, demonstrate that you have um, skills in quality improvement. And people would write on their resumes. Um, I've done a four-year um nutrition degree so I can demonstrate good communication skills. I did two weeks on prac and I have good 
team building skills. So I think my biggest tip for people at home is don't just write out that you have this skill or you're good at this skill. Show me how. And the resumes that stood out to me were like, rather than somebody saying, I have good communication skills because I spent four years at university and did prac at at your hospital versus I have great communication skills because on my prac, I was able to liaise with the social worker, the, the chief Uh, resident at the time and the physiotherapist to ensure a safe discharge for my patient who had, who had to go home on NG feeds and had, you know, stage three cancer or something like that. Like actually demonstrate the skill. Don't just say that you can do it because of your degree, because as you mentioned, we all graduate with the same degree at the end of the day. And dietitians are typically type A perfectionists. We all have very good grades. So a grade typically is not enough to get you a job. You really need to be able to showcase that you can meet the skills and criteria by giving proper examples in real life, even though you don't have much experience. Give some examples in real life of how you can demonstrate um, great communication skills between, um, you know, maybe you had some family members feuding. Give an example of how you managed to use your great communication skills to break down that feud and come up with a great resolution at the end of the day. It doesn't have to be applicable to dietetics or nutrition. Um, So I think that's probably the biggest thing I would see from resumes is people would just say, I can do this skill, but not actually show me or tell me how they could do that skill. So I think, as you said, it takes a little bit of extra time to do that, but I promise you that it'll help you land that job so much easier because you're actually showcasing yourself apart from other people who are not able to demonstrate demonstrate that they can do that skill. Yeah, that's a really good tip. And I suppose I'd like to add as well that, Mm. you know, when you're applying for jobs as a new graduate, there's a lot of rejection. Like Mm -hmm. it's just part of the process. It's a very small bunch of people that will apply for a job and get it first time around. So just set some realistic expectations around the timeframe that you have for yourself in getting a job. I think six months is a pretty realistic timeframe. If you think about, um, you know, perhaps the job opportunities that are available at a particular time of the year, because it always fluctuates. Mm-hmm. Um, and also know that a, a big part of a, a recruiter's job is picking someone that's going to be the right cultural fit for their organization as well. So mm-hmm. even though on paper you may have the skills and you've demonstrated all of those competencies and you have all of those examples like you were talking about, Leanne, sometimes it's just a matter of another applicant they believe is going to be a better cultural fit Mm -hmm. and going to get along with the team perhaps better than you would fit into the team. And that's totally okay. And know that you have the power as well to decline a job interview. Just because you're you're offered a job doesn't necessarily mean you have to take it. Um, So know your value and know your worth as well. Yeah, absolutely love it. And then finally, I think one thing while I was doing interviews and and, uh, hiring staff and that sort of thing, a big thing I realized was we always gave applicants the chance to ask some questions or say, do you want anything clarified or is there anything you'd like to ask us? And again, I feel like the interviewees who actually asked me things at the end kind of gave a crap about the job, if that made sense. Like a lot of people would just be like, no, thanks. That's great. Thanks for your time. And you could kind of tell they were rushing up to another interview versus the people that were like, you know what? I really, I love this organization. And can I just take a second to say why I want to work here or why this job means so much to me and not just go through the motions and do the interview when you're actually asked um, if you have anything to say at the end of the interview, if you want to clarify anything, like never ask about money or pay or that sort of thing. They're conversations for later. But actually tell people why you want that job and why it means so much 
to you and demonstrate that you've done a little bit of research about their organization. Like, I really want to work for this company because you know what? You've been a a family owned company in Australia. And that means so much to me to work for a local business. And I would just be honored to work for a company like you because I myself also have family values and blah, 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 blah. So just taking that extra little bit of time to research the company that you're actually going and interviewing for can make all the difference when, again, you're trying to set yourself apart from the other 8, 10, 15 people that they've interviewed that day who all look just as good as you on paper. Mm, Definitely. Really good advice. Mm, Lovely. And then obviously like clinical dietitian jobs are are one whole kettle of fish in themselves, but going for jobs that aren't traditionally like what you would consider a traditional nutritional, traditional dietetic job. And for example, like a social media position, which um, I know that you have some great experience in. So what would be some tips for you if we've got some listeners at home who would love to work you know, as a social media, um, in that position for maybe a company like a health food company or something like that. Do you have any tips or advice for our listeners at home about that? Yeah, of course. Well, I suppose it just goes back to what we were really talking about before in terms of what are those things that you were doing to set yourself from, from other people. So I, I guess I'm working in a social media role, which is very much part of a marketing team at the moment. And what I found to be really advantageous when I applied for this job is my own social media account. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had been able to demonstrate success in different social media campaigns that I have worked on through uh, my own business. I also um, have a podcast as well. So was able to go in with, you know, figures demonstrating the success of the podcast and my ability to write engaging copy for social media captions and really translate the science. So basically my social media and my podcast was my resume for this job because all my, um, you know, recruiter had to do was a simple Google search and then they can see everything about me. And I think having that as well, uh, it shows a lot about my character too. So, Mm. you know, if someone's gone away and taken the time to, you know, develop a website and start a podcast and, you know, keep up to date with a social media account, it shows that they're a pretty hardworking and driven person. And I think that's something that's really appealing. And it also shows your ability to communicate, mm-hmm. um, both written verbally as well, if you are quite active on your stories and in video content. Um, so I think all of those uh, little things that I was doing along the way ended up being really uh, advantageous in terms of securing a job in the marketing space. Definitely. Yeah. And I think it shows also your passion for it. Like you clearly want a job like that because you are very passionate about it and you, you almost walk the walk, if that makes sense. Like you're doing it because you love it and you do it in your spare time. Therefore, you'd also be great in a company position in that role as well. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I never thought of it like that, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then lastly, Rachel, what would be any, um, I guess you've had such a great career today so far, but anything that you wish you could go back and do differently or anything that you wish you knew, um, I guess that little bit earlier as a new graduate or anything you think that would have been advantageous to know at the beginning of your career versus now, you know, now? <laughs> yes, uh, a lot. Um, <laughs> so um, I don't think I mentioned, but I literally started my own business two months after graduating from um, my dietetics course. So I sort of went in, um, you know, created this nutrition consulting business and I was offering consults one-on-one online. And then over time, uh, it sort of evolved more into a personal brand. And now I work predominantly in the online space. So I suppose I wish that perhaps I had have sought out a business mentor 
early on to really help guide me because I've sort of just learned from my mistakes along the way. There's definitely been consulting jobs that I've done that I wish I perhaps hadn't have done just because um, they were quite public and, you know, there were issues along the way. And these are all lessons that have have sort of guide my practice now. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I never go into an agreement or or a collaboration or a partnership with a brand without a proper contract in place, because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just so important to have everything in writing and have uh, really clear guidelines around the expectations of both parties um, in partnerships, especially when it's information that's going online. It's very public um, and can be accessed by everyone. So you want to make sure that that, um, you know, everything that's put out into the world is as you would put it out into the world and can't be manipulated essentially. Um, so yes, definitely wish I had have gotten a business mentor. Mm-hmm. And then the flip side is I wish I perhaps looked after my own health a little bit more. So anyone who goes into business or who has their own business yeah. would know that it is just like, there's no off switch. Like there's (laughs) always stuff to do and you can get stuck in that like hustle and bustle of like, oh my God, I need to be like going to bed at like 12 o'clock at night because, you know, I have all of these things that I need to do. But the reality is, is that there's always going to be work to do. So set some really clear boundaries around your work time and rest time. Um, unfortunately I had to learn the hard way for that. And I ended up having, um, uh, struggling with my own mental health issues. And I had to take time away from my business because I just needed to stop and recoup and look after myself. So, um, again, I wish I sort of had a mentor or someone that I could have helped to guide me a little bit more. Definitely. Yeah. And I also, when I made that jump from clinical dietitian for many years to my own business owner as well, the first thing I did was, was hire a business coach and it was a very big investment. Um, but it was 100% worthwhile because you're just getting someone who has done it before you and sort of knows the ins and outs and the mistakes that you're about to make and is able to pull you back before you make them. So I, I definitely agree. And again, it's, it's one of those things where it's hard to find a good business mentor, but if you can find someone that has been recommended by a friend or someone that's been trusted or used by somebody else. I think that's a great, um, a great place to start as well, because, you know, the field of, um, nutrition dietetics, we don't get taught really any business skills. We don't really get taught much social media skills at all. Certainly not when I was at uni. I know they've definitely included some social media things in the curriculum these days, but definitely really not, um, many business skills and that sort of thing. And getting a good accountant is probably a really great thing to do as well. If you're going to run your own business. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I'm all about now like working smarter, not harder, um, outsourcing where you can, obviously when you first start a business, you probably don't have much money to play around with, but as you grow, you know, outsourcing the things that you're not as good at to mm-hmm. focus on, um, you know, the creative side of your business and, and new avenues. Um, I always say you don't want to always be working in your business. You need to also be working on your business and expansion. What's the next thing we're working on? So um, yeah, definitely outsourcing and working smarter. A hundred percent. And really simple things like um, Fiverr or Airtasker, you can get some super easy things done. Like if tech isn't your thing and you're trying to create an ebook rather than spending a week Googling how to get that up online, outsource it to somebody who that's their thing. You can pay them like, you know, 50 US dollars or something and it'll be up and done in a couple of hours. So definitely know your strengths and where your limitations are and use simple, simple, um, tools like, you know, Fiverr and Uptasker to do some of those, um, things that you're not so great at because we all have our strengths and our weaknesses. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) And then finally to finish on a really positive note, what things are you really thankful and grateful for in your career to date? Or what things do you believe have been crucial to your own success to date? 
Yeah, I was thinking about this one last night. Um, and I think I actually will have to say social media, yep. which is kind of weird that I'm saying that because I very much have a love-hate relationship with social media. But <laughs> um, I think Instagram in particular has allowed me to connect with so many incredible nutrition professionals and it's really given me a voice mm. in my own industry. And I think I sometimes forget that I was a new graduate and, you know, people who I would consider to be very well-known and respected people within our profession sort of knew my name and what I was about. And like, that's pretty cool. Like not a lot of people can say that. Um, and, you know, I started my Instagram not only because I wanted to, I guess, share nutrition information in, you know, a different way, in a fun way, but I also wanted to be a health professional that was relatable. And I think by putting myself out there and being vulnerable through my social media, sharing my business journey, sharing my struggles with, you know, my own health, um, I've really been able to build an engaged online community. There are people who trust me and they're really supportive of what I do because I feel like they feel really invested in my journey because they've sort of been, you know, along the ride with me. And it's because of them and, and their support that I'm really able to do the type of work that I do. Because mm -hmm. if I didn't have good engagement, there's no way that I'd be able to do social media uh, content creation with brands. There's no way that my podcast would have listeners. So um, I guess I'm grateful for the platform mm -hmm. that social media has provided me, but I'm grateful for social media because it's allowed me to connect and help so many people. And I guess I consider, you know, my audiences and online community supporters really pivotal uh, to my success. Definitely. Yeah. And I'm equally grateful for social media and all the wonderful things it's, it's given me in my business as well. When I think about the positive influence we can have to thousands of people around the world, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the world compared to, I might see 12 clients in clinic when I was a senior gastro dietitian at the hospital or something like that. Like you're just able to have a little bit more of a reach, a little bit more of an impact and help people worldwide that you might not even know that you've helped. Um, so I think social media is a, is a really cool thing. And we do live in a really cool, um, I guess, era where um, it's sort of at our fingertips and it's free to access and, and that sort of thing. And anything that we need to know, we can jump online and, and find an expert in seconds almost. Yeah, I think it, the internet is an incredible thing and social media is an incredible thing when it's used in the right way. And yeah, I think that connection factor is the best part for me, um, like you sort of touched on, because yeah, we're just able to have such a, a greater impact on people. Wonderful. And then finally, Rachel, where can our listeners reach out to you? Where can they find you? Um, what are your social medias? And let us know a little bit more about your podcast as well. Yeah, of course. So I might start on the podcast. Um, so my podcast is called uh, Naked Chats, and it's actually a, a podcast that uh, is I guess, created for nutrition professionals and aspiring nutritionists and dietitians. So sort of started as the result of my own struggles to establish my career post-grad. Um, you know, I very quickly realized that the job market was tough um, and that we're kind of unfortunately uh, work in a very undervalued uh, and underpaid profession. And mm. I was sort of like, why the hell aren't we talking about this? <laughs> they don't tell you this in uni. So um, in the podcast, I essentially uh, chat to a different nutrition professional each week, uh, people who work in different areas of practice and 
it's sort of just a way to really get to know a little bit more about them, their career journey, how they got into different areas within nutrition, and also the challenges that they've faced as well. All of those things that, you know, people don't really talk about. And I guess the result of that are conversations that are filled with a lot of really actionable tips for everyone um, that they can kind of use to help guide and shape their own careers within the nutrition industry. So that's called Naked Chats. It's available on all podcasting platforms. You can find me on Instagram. It's probably the best place. Uh, Rachel Hawkins Dietitian is my handle and my website is rachelhawkins.com.au. Wonderful. And I'll make sure to link all of that in our show notes as well. So um, thank you again so much for coming on this podcast and enlightening us with, I guess, your own journey and the different career paths and options and that sort of thing for our listeners at home. I hope that um, I hope that people have found it helpful. So thank you again so much. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. And we will catch our listeners in the very next podcast.